I have been reading a book of astonishing clarity and thus of great value. It is titled White Guilt, subtitle How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era. The author is Shelby Steele, who is a well-known black intellectual. One modifies intellectual with, uh, the, uh, uh, with the adjective black by virtue of the nature of the book itself, um, as we will shortly and instantly discover. Uh, we're talking with Shelby Steele, who is at the moment in the studios of KSPB at Pebble Beach, uh, California. Good evening, sir. Good evening. It's a great pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to begin, as you begin the book, uh, with um, your dialogue, as it were, or at least your pondering, as you're driving uh, up from Los Angeles back toward uh, your home in Northern California a few years ago. Uh, as you're pondering the uh, <laughs> the behavior of two presidents, Bill Clinton and Dwight David Eisenhower. Yes, this was about uh, oh a month after Bill Clinton, uh, the, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing broke, and he wagged his finger and mm -hmm. said he hadn't had sex with that woman. And uh, I thought immediately that he would he would not make it, but um, he'd be out in a week. You he'd thought. be out in about a week, and um, I thought so too at the time. Yeah. I think I think many did, but a few weeks later, in this beginning this trip, uh, listening to talk radio, it, it sort of became clear to me that he might well survive. Uh, he had certainly already survived longer than I thought he would. Uh, then I heard someone mention President Eisenhower in the, on on the talk radio and said that saying that he would not have survived had he had a, a an affair with a with a young intern like this. That he would have been gone within 24 hours. Um, well, it, it then I then sort of kept going with that that sort of comparison or, and contrast, and sort of asked myself because I remember hearing growing up in Chicago in the in the 50s that uh, that Eisenhower had used the N word on the golf course, and that no one no reporter thought much of it, um, and so it occurred to me that Harry uh, Truman used it routinely as well. I think yeah, I'm sure he probably did. Uh, but it, it it occurred to me that that uh, each president that, that it said something about where uh, morality was at in America. In the 50s, morality was around sex, and we were unforgiving. And if you if you broached uh, sexual etiquette and we found out about it, of course I think we probably knew things were going on. But if it if it became public, then you would be punished severely. You, we were puritanical around sex. In the in the uh, 90s, um, if if President Clinton had used the N word in his affair with with uh, Monica Lewinsky, it seems to me that he probably would also have been gone, certainly within a week. That he would not have been able to survive a racial indiscretion. Uh, and so our our puritanical, our moral puritanism shifted from sex to race, and we now live in an era where we are puritanical about the latter and sort of relativistic about the former. It's interesting, isn't it, as well, to reflect that it was said of Bill Clinton, and he loved to uh, repeat this, I think, or at least he loved to have it said about him, that he was, quote, the country's first black president. Yes, yes, it was, I think, Tony Morrison who first said that, but, but he certainly didn't, uh, didn't uh, throw off that mantle. He seems to have, to have worn it with, uh, with considerable pride. Uh, well, then, again, the implication is, I think, certainly from my point of view, rather ugly, that, that sexual indiscretions don't matter, 
um, as long as one is sort of, uh, again, politically correct. Certainly Clinton was politically correct. Um, so you take this change in the moral standards by which we judge presidents as a reflection of a basic tectonic shift, so to speak, in the conscience of white America. Yes, absolutely. And, and much about it is, is extremely good, as I, as I t say in the book. I grew up uh, in segregated Chicago. I, w I grew up in, in Phoenix, Harvey, uh, South, went to Thornton High School uh, in a time when uh, uh, thing, everything was segregated. Um, Harvey was all white. Phoenix was all black. Uh, I lived in a segregated world. Um, and so the fact that people were puritanical around sex was, I suppose, interesting and good, but it didn't help me much. Yeah. Uh, I talk about in the book now, these many years later, in the 1990s and 2000, uh, I can walk down almost any street in American any street in American society and go wherever I want and do whatever I want to do. Uh, though, and and again, we're today we're we're much more relativistic about sex, but we're certainly puritanical about race, and I and that gives me, uh, as an American citizen, a degree of comfort that I didn't have before. At the same time, it inhibits white. Uh, observers of our society from speaking with absolute candor about some things that bother them about uh, life in the black community. Absolutely. I think whites today, I don't think we've heard the truth, uh, what whites have spoken truthfully to black America for 40 or more years now, certainly since the victories of the civil rights movement, and um, which were, I think, America's probably most honorable moment. But the price Americans paid for that, certainly white Americans, is that they became uh, began to live under the threat of being stigmatized with those past sins. And so any black could walk up to any white and say, if you don't speak in this particular way and, and, and act in this particular way, then we're going to stigmatize you as a racist. Mm -hmm. That's now a disgrace. You're going to pay for that in your career and otherwise. So that power to stigmatize whites is what I sort of is what I mean by white guilt. As a talk show host of many years standing, inevitably the conversation on this program has sometimes turned for a full two hour topic to the situation of black Americans, and particularly to the dilemma or the tragedy of uh, those still mired in uh, what we used to call the ghetto and now we call the by, because of a need for some sort of euphemism, we mm -hmm. call the inner city. Yes. But uh, and when I've had guests, black guests, on the program with me, uh, they are comfortable talking about the problem of illegitimacy and crime and the drug uh, uh, plague and uh, the nastiness and uh, essentially inhumane quality of much that's in rap and hip hop music. But if I, the white host of this program, uh, choose to say the same. Uh, I feel a certain mm -hmm. trepidation. I, I do allow myself to say what I think, but only when surrounded by black uh, guests <laughs> who agree with me. <laughs> so this is well, that's it. That's, further evidence uh, of that same sort of intimidation. Yeah, it's it is uh, it is a it constitutes a power. It, yeah. it gives uh, it gives minorities a power that we certainly never had when again I was growing up in the in the era of segregation and, uh, and political correctness is essentially the language of white guilt. Your book is done in the form of what you call a Chautauqua, uh, mm -hmm. which means a general thesis or an argument developed uh, with uh, in detail and in, uh, but also relieved by or punctuated by narrative material, which sort of helps 
to make the general argument. It's in a way a personalized uh, essay. And yes. um, you start, of course, with you as a kid in uh, uh, in uh, the Chicago suburbs in a totally segregated, still essentially pre-civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there are some things in there that are rather heartbreaking. They don't, they don't break your heart. You're not looking for sympathy. But it is. A, I reflect particularly on your eagerness to be a bat boy for the <laughs> local ball team. Yes, uh, yes, I did. I, I, uh, again, I tell the story. I wanted to be uh, a bat boy for the YM, the Harvey YMCA yeah. baseball team, which was uh, they were all older than me. Uh, but you were a kid well, of about twelve at the I time. I was about eleven, twelve, yeah. and they played on a beautifully groomed field with bleachers and dugouts and. I grew up in Phoenix where, you know, we just had a sort of muddy lot. And so this was so glamorous to me. And I loved baseball. And, and I sort of knew that, that black kids were not allowed to be bat boys. But I just, there was no white kid applying for the job. So I began to do the, uh, pick up the bats and the balls and, and to do all of, as I say, the stoop labor for the coach of the team to the point where finally he sort of gave me the nod, which is to say he gave me some jobs to do, and uh, I just I just did them as as, uh, as well as I could and, and tried to impress him because it was just such a uh, uh, a chance to be in a larger world than than anything I knew. But then comes the moment of truth. Then comes the moment of truth. One Saturday morning we were going away to a, to an away game on the south side, some baseball park on the south side of Chicago. Uh, and I loaded up the bus, and uh, I sort of felt all the eyes from the players sitting in the bus looking down at me. And I knew I had sort of come to that brick wall. Uh, but as I say, the, the momentum, the desire to, to be a bat boy for this team kept me marching ahead. So I walk up to the door of the bus, and of course the coach comes down and puts his hand on my shoulder and says, they don't allow coloreds to to uh, play in to be in that park, and so I can't use you anymore. What year would that have been? That would have been in the late fifties. That would have yeah. been fifty-eight, fifty-nine. And ten years later, you're an under I think. Yes. Uh, and you developed quote black consciousness. Yes, uh, we black power had had um, had just swarmed over. Uh, my generation of, mm -hmm. of young blacks in college. We came into college as civil rights integrationists, but but uh, very quickly the black power movement uh, uh, dominated, and I was sort of the leader. You heard of that. Stokely Carmichael in one of those Southern marchers that's shouting, exactly "Black right. power, black power." Yes, that's a, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And uh, uh, then by 1968, when I was a senior, the Black Panthers had emerged, and so mm -hmm. we were all caught up in that. And uh, so ten years later, I was storming into the the college president's office, uh, smoking a cigarette, dropping ashes on his carpet, and uh, confronting him with a list of demands. <laughs> what were the demands? Oh, I can hardly remember. I've tried to remember <laughs> them. Uh, they were all we wanted a separate separate uh, black uh, house just for black students to socialize. We wanted separate everything. It, it's, a, it's a reversal against against integration, which was the oh, theme yes. just a year or two before. Yes, we it was a complete rejection of of integration, and um, I suppose some of the demands. I remember one that made sense. We wanted we wanted more black faculty, though we had a, a black English professor, and we didn't like him. This was <laughs> this was Co College. Is that this right? was Co College in Cedar Rapids, yeah, Iowa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what struck me was that the president. Uh, who had been a rather disciplinarian, uh, much of a disciplinarian before, so just what 
got up, seemed to get up, and sat back down. And and um, at that moment, I saw that that he was unable. He some some doubt within himself stopped him from challenging us. Now it's clear that the moral force in those few years of the civil rights revolution, as it might properly be called, uh, that the moral force was on the side of the protesting blacks. Yes. Uh, it's also clear, and this is something that you uh, strive to, uh, to account for, but your characterization of it is certainly accurate, that the outcome for whites in the main, well, well there were two things. One, they yielded in many ways. The society changed for the better with regard to issues of prejudice and discrimination. But a further attitudinal outcome was the development of white guilt rather than white pride in having finally done the right thing. Yes. Why it went that way is some, and how it went that way is something we need to discuss. As we continue, right now we pause for some commercials and then directly back to Shelby Steele, who is, I should have said earlier, a, um, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he's talking to us from uh, Northern California, where he uh, regularly lives, talking to us from KSPB at Pebble Beach, California. We return to him directly after this. And we return to conversation with Shelby Steele, author of the new book, White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era. That book just published by Harper Collins. Uh, and I do want to read um, a comment about the book by Charles Johnson, who's the author of that uh, very important book about uh, the beginning of slavery in this country, Middle Passage, uh, who says, uh, with his characteristic honesty, clarity, and hard-won wisdom, Shelby Steele exposes the social hypocrisies and racial lies that transformed the once promising post-civil rights era into a period of cultural decadence and mediocrity. We owe Citizen Steele our thanks. On questions of race in America, white guilt, black opportunism, he is our 21st century Socrates. The powerful, lucid, and elegant voice of a refreshingly independent thinker who desires only to see us liberated from sophistry and self-destructive illusions. Uh, white guilt, black opportunism, uh, sophistry, self-destructive illusions. Uh, weave that together for us, if you will, Shelby. <laughs> um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, well, I think that, um, <coughs> just when I started to speak there, I caught something in my throat. Um, what I really want to say is that, again, in that, that great moment of, of those 64, 65 Civil Rights Bill, Voting Rights Act, when, when I sort of see as, as the true liberation of black Americans. This is when we really and truly had a body of law behind us for the first time that guaranteed our freedom that we could use to, to, uh, to ensure our freedom. Uh, it was a noble moment for white America. I think in many ways it was America's most honorable moment. I've never, there has never been a society that I'm aware of that has faced up to a wrong that it had practiced for four centuries and said, well, we're going to, it was wrong and we're going to face that and we're going to do something about it. So it was, it was a moment of American greatness. But the price that, that um, again, whites paid for that is, is that they then became stigmatized with those sins. It's as... It's as if uh, I, I steal uh, some money from uh, from you, from Milton Rosenberg, and, and uh, then you catch me, and, and so I confess. And so from that point on, I, it may be honorable that I confess, but from that point on, you can call me a thief. And I don't have much defense for that. I'm vulnerable. I have to constantly prove the negative, that I'm not one, 
that you should trust me, that, that I don't want to be the kind of person I was in the past. And that's sort of the situation that, that not only white Americans, but American institutions have been in uh, since, the, since the 60s. The other side of that, of course, is that then we as blacks realized that for the first time in four centuries, we had whites back on their heels. Uh, we could make them prove the negative. We could demand things. We could, we could expand this, the obligation of, of white America to black America. And so we made the mistake of falling in love with this, this, this sort of uh, cheap power as, uh, as a way to advance. It's a way of making it hot for whitey. Yes, yes. You've got, uh, again, another personal recollection, a personal story that you tell in the book. Um, you're driving a bus one summer here in Chicago uh, for the uh, for a Chicago transportation, whatever they call it. CTA. CTS, CTA, yeah. rather. Um, and um, you go to hear a uh, talk by Dick Gregory. I, I gather in a black church someplace yes. on the south side. Yes. And it's a transformative moment for you. Yes, it was, because uh, he, like, and I don't mean to pick on Dick Gregory, there were many other uh, leaders at that time, Stokely Carmichael's been mentioned, uh, many others, uh, who were basically saying, look, understand, racism is not just something that happens to you when you go and apply for a job and you get re rejected. Race racism is institutional. It's structural. Uh, it's systemic. And uh, this was a was a, a kind of enlightenment for me, and it gave me this. It, and of course, why was he saying this? This was this was 1967, 68. This was we had just won freedom with from the, the civil rights movement, and and uh, he was all of a sudden saying that racism was far worse than we ever thought it was. Well, again, I'm looking back, his purpose was to, as I say in the book, globalize racism to make racism larger so that we could also expand white obligation. Uh, and that was the, that what became the strategy of black American advancement from that point on. To, uh, to play upon white obligation, how was white obligation, the sense of white obligation, the sense that though civil rights had now been enacted in very significant ways, we still owed a great deal and we still owed a kind of a pass to blacks for whatever uh, uh, lack of um, of performance or lack of civility they might sometimes demonstrate. How was this uh, routine worked on white leadership, uh, and by whom was it worked? Oh, it was worked by an entire a new generation of black leaders who emerged uh, immediately. Let us uh, name names. Oh, six, uh, right now, right in '66, I think it was. Uh, we began to hear Stokely Carmichael talk about black power. Then there was. H. Rap Brown, then there mm -hmm. was uh, the Black Panthers, then there were the cultural nationalists, Ron Karenga, uh, Elders Cleaver, Huey Newton. These were the, this was sort of the militant front. Then there were the sort of ones who, the, the more educated, uh, sophisticated ones right uh, on behind them, uh, like Jesse Jackson, yeah. uh, who, who really uh, knew, much, was much more sophisticated in manipulating the white guilt and uh, from from the very beginning was a kind of genius at it one has to give him <laughs> one has to give him a, a degree of credit and also he managed to extract a lot of money from corporations by doing so that's right that's right in recent years 750 million dollars from toyota companies 750 million from texaco hundreds of millions from uh, coca-cola uh, and so forth so he's he is uh, he turned it into an art form um, because he could go to those those corporations and he could say, if you don't want your Toyota car to be seen as a racist symbol, 
do business with me. And Toyota is in business to sell cars. Uh, I've been pondering uh, whether the Romans understood all of this, and I think they did. I've got to stop right now for the Romans way, way back. At least they gave us uh, uh, a saying or two which really does bear upon the matters we're discussing now. I shall explain what I'm talking about right after we pause for a quick update on the evening's news. And directly back to Shelby Steele, I was teasing a little bit just a moment ago by uh, speaking of the Romans had a term for it or had a saying for it. What I had in mind, Shelby, was uh, you know the famous Roman uh, adage or the famous R- Roman uh, advice, uh, de mortui nil nisi bonum, of the dead speak only good. Uh, <laughs> a variant on that would be uh, de nigri, and forgive me for that, but what has to say, being um, caught in the usual political correctness, but yeah. the Latin word for black is niger or niger, uh, de nigri nil nisi bonum, of the blacks speak only good. But, and this is where it becomes paradoxical, at the same time, don't put them to, uh, don't hold them to the same standards uh, that we hold for ourselves with regard to educational attainment, with regard to occupational performance, uh, with regard, for that matter, even to uh, uh, personal morality. That's right. That's right. It's um, uh, in in order to make up for the past, in order to uh, um, uh, accommodate the the suffering, the 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 tragedy of what whites of what whites once did to to black Americans. Uh, what has in effect happened is that we've we've said, well, we we will me- we will show you a new respect by expecting less of you, exactly by lowering standards everywhere we can. It is what President Bush titled the soft. Uh, what was his phrase? The soft bigotry of low expectations. Of low expectations. Yes, exactly. and he's absolutely very, right on the money. That's that is that is the way. Again, in my last book, I talked about deference and license. What whites have to yeah. do is, is defer and offer a license to blacks that they would never offer to other whites. That was in A Dream Deferred. Yes. Which is your last book. Uh, this, uh, that subtitle, The Second Betrayal of Black Freedom in America. Yes. Uh, your book still before that was The Content of Our Character, A New Vision of Race in America, for which I believe you won, uh, what, the National Book Award, wasn't it? The National Book Critics Circle Award. Yeah, there you are. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with regard to low expectations, you know, uh, I've been a college professor all of my adult life, uh, many, many years, uh, until I went emeritus a few years ago. And um, during my time on board, uh, among the many changes one saw in the American University was the strange um, phenomenon of grade inflation. Yes. Uh, everybody gets an A, or at the most, a B, or at the worst, a B plus. Uh, which makes grading essentially meaningless and also destroys the basis for getting it to Phi Beta Kappa. Um, right. I've asked myself often, what what fostered that? Partly it's the need to please customers. Uh, as the market conditions change and you've got to uh, hold a student body, you don't flunk many because then they might be out of school or the parents might get angry and put them in another school and not pay the tuition. But in part, I know for a fact that it also began to happen as we got more and more black students into the graduate programs, and some of them were admitted just because they were black rather than because they were blacks who had, as some certainly did, the qualities that would that promised good performance as graduate students. Uh, and then you had the embarrassment of what do you do with those uh, kids who really aren't up to snuff because their education wasn't as good as the education of most of the white kids who came into the same graduate program. And the answer was, well, you, gotta, you have to... Uh, 
you don't reflect that in the grading. You don't. Yes. You owe them a better grade than they really have de- really have earned. That's right. That's right. And, and that's not. And of course, what that, that leads me. I'm sorry to go on this long with it. I want to hear you talking about it rather than me. But what that leads us to is the basic question of: Are you serving the interests of the black student well, or are are you disserving his interests? Right. You're di- uh, the, the, you're disserving uh, everybody because what in effect happens when you lower standards to let a certain group of students in? Uh, invariably, you have to lower standards across the board. And um, you, again, this is a part of white guilt. One of the the most I think pernicious features of it is the fact that the, our American institutions lost moral authority. Uh, okay. And I can think of no institution where this has happened more than in public education. Mm-hmm. Pub- when I grew up, the pub- America's public schools were the best in the world. Today, they're they're far down the list in the in the, in the modern world. Uh, and part of that has to do with the fact that white guilt prevents us from enforcing difficulty in any institution. We, we, we are less and less able to ask really difficult, uh, self-sacrificing things from uh, in, in any of our institutions because that we're going to end up creating a racial disparity. Are we also less likely then to enforce mere discipline where it is required? Absolutely. We're going to ex- we're going to excuse every kind of weakness, and when you excuse it, of course, you end up rewarding it. Uh, there was absolutely no there was no black underclass in the United States until after the welfare policies of the early 70s came into effect, where you give people uh, a subsistence living for doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, affirmative action takes the best and the brightest of black American youth, those who have every kind of privilege and six-figure incomes and two-parent homes, and says you simply cannot compete with your white and Asian peers. What what a terrible thing to uh, you're rewarding their their sort of uh, their seeking of the, uh, you're rewarding hustling rather than excellence. Do you then stand in basic opposition to the whole? Uh, clamor for affirmative action? Absolutely. And, and, and what's, what is so interesting to me is the clamor for affirmative action. You notice it came out, it was before the Supreme Court two, uh, three years ago in, in 2003, and, it, and racial preferences uh, survived. Uh, uh, Justice it, O'Connor told us for another 25 years. In the Michigan case? In the Michigan case, yeah. uh, there was no black march on Washington in support of affirmative action. There were 100 or more than 100 briefs submitted to the Supreme Court from American institutions, from the military to corporate America, government agencies, saying we have to have it. We don't care what it does to black students. We need it because we need it in order to recoup the moral authority and the legitimacy of our institutions. We seem to be a morally confused nation in some very basic ways. Uh, Some commercials beckon once again, Mm -hmm. or rather impinge. Um, A few minutes out and directly back to these issues, in conversation with Shelby Steele, drawing from his very important new book, White Guilt. Our guest tonight is the distinguished scholar Shelby Steele, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and is the winner of the 2006 Bradley Prize for his contributions to the study of race in America. We are drawing from his most recent book, White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era that is just published by HarperCollins. Shelby, I read a single paragraph from a recent column by George Will, uh, actually a column in Newsweek. Uh, The dehumanizing denial that blacks 
had sovereignty over their lives became national policy in 1965 when President Lyndon Johnson said, quotes, You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him. Bring him up to the starting line in a race and then say you are free to compete with all the others, end quote. This, Steele writes, because this column is about you, this, Steele writes, enunciated a new social morality. No black problem could be defined as largely a black responsibility. If you were black, you could not be expected to carry responsibilities equal to others. Yeah. Uh, your explication of text. Yes, I think this was... Um this may have been the most terrible thing that, uh, well, you know, one helps, I don't want to use superlatives, but certainly it's one of the worst things that ever happened to black America is, is this, and Johnson's 65 speech at Howard University sort of uh, spelled this out. He spelled out white responsibility, and black difficulty was going to, from then, thenceforward, be a white responsibility. And he said not a single word about what, blacks would have to do to achieve equality on their own behalf no president since him since him has has uttered a single word about what blacks must do themselves to overcome four centuries of deprivation um, obviously we have much to do and and the worst thing that any society could do to us is to suggest that it was going to be responsible and we were we wouldn't have to worry about it somehow we'd be magically uh, developed into into modern people this was a a tragedy there are now some black scholars and black intellectuals and just black social observers uh, you are one tom Sowell, also a fellow at the hoover institution is another and we could name many others uh... bill cosby working from a very different vantage point is yet another all of whom come together in saying it's time for us indeed us that is black americans to face our own situation and face our own responsibilities and stop blaming everything on whitey yes indeed uh, i had to talk to bill cosby not too long ago and and um, uh, i think he's done something rather heroic he, he certainly didn't have to do anything uh, but uh, he's he's uh, taken quite a step when you cross that line when you say that that blacks are in some way responsible for their own futures you cross a sacred line in american society today and and if you're white and you cross that line you're going to be called a racist if yep. you're black you're going to be an uncle tom and you you and so it's a very very difficult line for for people to to cross cosby has been attacked by many black commentators and by much of the black press in this country yes he has he's been vilified uh... and this is a man who we have to remember is given uh... uh tens of millions of dollars to black colleges and individuals uh... there are people who's he's met on the street who he's financed through college so this is not a a man who's been uh, ungenerous and uncaring he he is all of his life demonstrated his commitment to black educational advancement now there are uh, there are major organizations uh, concerned with these matters um, and essentially black organizations have have they elaborated a critical viewpoint or do they essentially still play the uh, the racial guilt huckster game I have in mind particularly NAACP yeah. Urban League the old organizations yes well, you know, it's so sad to me. This is one of the sad stories because these organizations have become just um, almost valueless. Uh, they have, in in 40 years, 
um, since the civil rights victories, these organizations have had no impact, have turned around and, and not themselves asked anything of their own people. Uh, but they have, of course, certainly asked a good deal of corporate America. They are entirely financed by corporate America. If NAACP and Urban League had to survive tomorrow by the contributions that blacks make, they'd be out of business by noon. Blacks do not financially support these organizations. They are totally the manifestation of white guilt at this point. White corporate America uh, gives them all of their money, and, of course, therefore, the, from once the money comes, that's where the allegiance is. They then vet, in turn, white American institutions and say, well, you, you're not racist and, and, so, and so forth. And so there's this sort of symbiosis. And in the meantime, of course, real black problems, education, so forth, are completely, they're not ignored, but they're not in any way addressed in a, in a way that would, that would be realistic, that would actually help uh, blacks see a way into the future. Well, what is the real situation of the total black population of this country, granting that classification as black in itself is somewhat arbitrary. And there are some people who could classify themselves either way, but choose to classify themselves as black. Uh, but what is the situation as between uh, the ever-expanding, in sheer number, uh, black middle class and professional class on the one hand, and those left behind, all the way, uh, meaning a large group comprising working-class people employed and more or less maintaining family life, but that larger sector still that uh, Robert Kennedy years ago classified as the underclass and which has gone spiraling down in terms of family disorganization since the years of the civil rights victories. Yes. Um, you know, there's even a good deal of fragility in the black middle class. Uh, black women today get married at half the rate and divorced at twice the rate of mm -hmm. white women. Uh -huh. uh, our overall legitimacy rate still is at 90 percent, excuse me, 70 percent. In, in certain inner cities, it's, it's at 90 percent. So there's been a profound injury to the black family. Um, and that has made... It was, it was only, the illegitimacy rate, as you know well, know, was only 30 percent uh, in the black population at the time of the um, uh, of the Moynihan report. That's right. That's right. It was. Uh, it was. Of course, now uh, uh, the the white illegitimacy rate is is it's approaching. Thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but yes, that's that's true. And so now it's more than doubled, and it is it is not declined. I mean, it stays right there. At, at well, that means the the institution of marriage is in in great decline. It was it was the family that enabled Black America to survive slavery and segregation, uh, and the breakdown of that family makes it difficult for us to thrive even as we are free for the first time and have opportunities for the first time. So it is there's nothing worse that can happen to a group than to than to injure the institution of the family, and that's what white guilt in it indirectly and with all good intentions. Uh, that's one of the the unintended consequences of it. You remember the old Quaker injunction that's been much applied in many directions, speak truth to power. Uh, what, who should speak what truth to what power about these, about these matters these days? Well, I think I'm doing that. I think you are, <laughs> I think you are indeed. <laughs> but what, what power are you addressing? Well, I'm, the, the establishment, the, the, the mainstream establishment in, in America, is its, its social morality is almost entirely defined by white guilt. You see that in its, its fastidious political correctness. I took out something from an ATM machine uh, the other day, the, and I got a receipt back for it, and on the back was an advertisement for diversity. 
Mm. Well, what in God's name does this have to do with, with why is this on my receipt, you know, from, the, from an ATM? Corporate America is, is obsessed with, with this, this shallow, um, silly sort of idea that, that probably none of them can, can define uh, because, again, it, 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 is the, it uh, gives them moral authority. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning that. I'm saying it doesn't really give you moral authority. It's an easy way out. It's a, and I say to black Americans, it's a fool's game. It's fool's gold. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing of any real meaning or value here. We're still not competitive with other groups in American life. And until we are, we're not going to be equal. What's the way to become competitive? The way to become competitive is to go back and do that hard work, primarily of education, beginning when, when your child is born, you, you talk to it, you make sure that it learns its letters and its numbers and its colors, and you read stories to it, and you develop it so that when it goes to school, that child is actually ready to intellectually and academically learn. Now, Shelby, what do you make of this? This is going a bit afield, but you will see why I'm going in this direction. You know the work of Howard Gardner? Yes. A psychologist at Harvard. Yes. Who argues that uh, that intelligence is uh, not a single quality, but there are multiple intelligences, and people vary in the things that uh, they can be skilled in, and there's an implication there that, uh, just as there is in the educational world itself, that uh, maybe there's a black intelligence which differs somewhat from white intelligence. For all I know, it has more to do with rhythm than with vocabulary. It's a dreadful idea. That's absurd. But blacks play. Some blacks play along with it, don't they? Well, they, because again, think they'll be somehow rewarded for that. It's it's just absurd. Uh, there, there's, well, we don't want to get into the whole IQ debate and so forth. But but these, there are, the sort of psychologists who come up with these gimcrack theories yeah. uh, are are just amazing because they're they're really part of they're of manipulating white guilt. They're sort of saying, look, we're special. We have a special kind of intelligence, and you owe us you owe us a lower standard. Uh, uh, because we're black. But you also get within black uh, inner city life and in hip-hop culture or what have you, you also get the theme that to be good in school is uh, playing Whitey's game and that's not really black. That's, that's right. You get, you get it's, it, it's, it's, one of the, it's an amazing phenomenon. You take, people wonder why uh, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and people like this are often criticized in yeah. the black community. People who've wonderful achievements, whatever you think of their politics, they're certainly bright, competent, high-achieving people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put them down because they make us aware. They humiliate us. They make us aware of how far a black can go in America today if they just work hard, put, their, put one foot in front of the other. And so we have to put them down and, and say they're not really black and that they're, they're sellouts and that they're so forth and so on. Uh, it's a way of protecting us in our in our commitment to academic mediocrity and inferiority. I've talked a few times with a group of black businessmen here in Chicago, had them on the program, who are, by definition, conservative, uh, and who argue just as you do, and argue against uh, pandering and argue against uh, separate levels of expectation for blacks as opposed to whites. Uh, but in the main, they are, uh, if not dishonored in the community, they are in essence ignored in the larger Chicago black community, I would say. Um, yes. uh, is, th- is this viewpoint that you represent, that the group I'm talking about represents, various others whom we could name and have named represent, is this viewpoint making any significant headway in black American life? Well, I, actually, I think it is. Um, 
you know, if if when, when there are no whites around and there's an opportunity uh-huh. to speak frankly with with blacks, uh, I am surprised at the degree of openness. Uh, you, will, for example, you will hear most blacks say, "Well, you know, Cosby was right." Uh, they'll they'll argue about the way he said it, his his language or or whatever. But but there are not many blacks who disagree at this point with that message. They're just one of the problems we keep having is is collective shame. It's embarrassing now to be to be to acknowledge these things and to not acknowledge that we for the first time are victims not only of white racism but victims of ourselves. We were the ones who who made this big mistake of of, of believing that white guilt would redeem us. Was it? And in, we now have to we now have to face that, and it's difficult. Was it inevitable? Was it inevitable? And in the cards, does that happen? Would it happen when any group has come out from oppression uh, through that kind of struggle? Would Absolutely. They- yes, I, I I really I think it's one of the problems you see in in the Middle East. You see it in any the first thing that when 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 a group hits freedom. Yeah. It doesn't come as a promised land. It comes as a shock, and it, it shames you because you, for the very first time, see how non-competitive you are, how, in, how, un, how backward you and are, do you then how much make you it hot, have to do. And do you then make it hot for the former oppressors? Yes, and, then, and so then what you do is you say, oh, well, we're, we're really not free, and the, yeah. the former oppressor is the one who's going to redeem us, and, and that's what we've been going through for and the last four years. And he's got to still make exceptions for us. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, Shelby, we're due for some commercials once again and a newscast after that, and then we shall return in conversation with Shelby Steele, author of White Guilt. And we return to Shelby Steele, author of White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era, that new book just published by HarperCollins. Back to uh, our guest in a moment, but first I do want to invite telephone calls. We're opening the lines. The number, of course, is, as ever, 591 7200 And I am hoping, indeed I am eagerly hoping, that uh, our black listeners uh, will uh, be calling in if they've got reaction to what they are hearing tonight. Uh, I would oppose this uh, this conversation tonight to what I so often hear when I tune in the leading black talk station in Chicago. On radio stations, you're not supposed to name other radio stations, but everybody knows I'm talking about WVON. Uh, during the daytime, they're nice, they're community-oriented. At night, they've got some hosts who essentially are still uh, preaching and more than preaching are raging against white racism as if that is all that is wrong in uh, black life in this country these days. Um, yes. Shelby, back to you. Uh, towards the end of the book, you confess that you, uh, you, you, you employ the vocabulary of psychopathology. You confess that you <laughs> suffered a kind of schizophrenia. Yes. Explain, please. Yes, I did. Uh, well, as, as time went on, and uh, talking this was sort of back in the, the, the 80s when I sort of uh, began to write about uh, race in America, but, you know, I, I had been very, uh, what's, uh, liberal and uh, sort of leftist in my politics all my life, coming out of, again, growing up with the civil rights movement. And, uh, but as I, as I just simply lived life in America and uh, went to work every day, put one foot in front of the other, I began to see that I just simply had an awful lot of opportunity in the society. I had, it was everywhere. I could, I could just pretty much do whatever I sort of made my mind up that I wanted to wanted to take a shot at there was there's really nothing holding me back and so I was a, but yet as a the black identity that we came out of the 60s with which is a totalitarian identity 
It insists that you see racism as the number one problem that blacks face, that racism explains whatever problems we have, our weaknesses, our non-competitiveness, and so forth. It, racism is a kind of religion. It's a, it's a, it's a faith. And, it, and if you want to make a civil rights leader outraged, just tell him that racism is not the number one problem that blacks, that blacks face, because it, it, then you take all the excuses away. And there we are, just looking at our freedom and our opportunity. And uh, so, so I, w I was living with a black identity that asked me to be schizophrenic. I was experiencing opportunity. It asked me to say there was not. There was and there is opportunity everywhere. And so my sort of slow evolution in this direction has been simply to accept, uh, yes, racism exists. Uh, it's not a perfect society. It never will be. Um, but groups that embrace freedom do well even when they are discriminated against. It's right, not but, a justification of discrimination. But here, let me imitate or try to uh, empathize a voice from the ghetto, uh, which might at this point say, and somebody may well call in and say this, yeah, that's fine for you. Uh, you, got, uh, you, you had a, a, a good, stable family. You had a very good father, whom you describe in the book. Um, you were kind of encouraged to work hard, and maybe you just got the right genes for it as well, so that you stuck mm -hmm. to it even against adversity and against evidence of prejudice and, and put down. And, of course, you got, went on and got a Ph.D., and then you got federal jobs. So you are among the advantaged, but a kid coming out of the ghetto with no father at all and with a mother who is uh, uh, overwhelmed and not too competent mm -hmm. and not knowing much about uh, the shape of the world outside, he's got he's uh, naturally or culturally one down or two or three down. And uh, what you're saying doesn't really apply to him. Well, you're absolutely right. If you, I don't care what race you are. If you're born and you don't have a father and you and and your mother is overwhelmed and you're in in uh, uh, poor circumstances and so forth. That's a disadvantage, but that's not racism. That's not white racism. That's not a that's not a society oppressing you. That is that you that there's something in the in the in the society in which the the local society in which you live, the local culture in which you live, that is that where you're where you're having children out of wedlock all the time, where you're you're doing precisely the kind of things that keep you entrapped in poverty. And Still, it's not we, racism. But if we want to get that kid out of the trap is not perhaps some special kind of affirmative action called for. The first thing we have to do to get that kid out of the trap is tell him that racism is not his problem. That his problem, the biggest problem, as I talk about in the book, the biggest problem that black Americans have is freedom. When, you've been, when you've been oppressed for four centuries, yeah. the one thing you don't know how to, how to thrive in, you may not have the values for, um, is freedom. And that's what, that's what we've got to learn how to that, handle. That's the first thing you have to tell him. What's the second thing you tell him? The second thing you tell him is to is to ex, is to well I can give you an, one of the the great uh, inner city programs that I admire a great deal in Los Angeles is is uh, uh, run by a uh, a minister there called Bond and uh, what the first thing he does with he only deals with young males and the first thing he does is he says get over your anger mm -hmm. give up your anger your anger is going to ruin your life once you get over your anger you can look around. You can get a GED. You can go to a great junior college. We have the greatest junior college system in the United States that, uh, imaginable. You can get a trade. You can, you can move on to a four-year. You've got all kinds of possibilities once you drop this, this sickness we have, this, yeah. this faith that racism is just 
it's it's a it's a it's it's really perverse at this point. Uh, we're we've got loads of calls, and I want to get to, I will get to them in a few minutes. But I want to turn to one other thing, which is not so much developed in the book, but is developed in a recent uh, article that you did, in which you are uh, tracing back to white guilt some unfortunate aspects of our foreign policy. Yes, I think white guilt has a good deal to do with the way uh, one of the things that you see is as we as we and it's, it's not just the current war, but uh, uh, all the way back to Vietnam, if not all the way back to Korea, where we have sort of fought these wars um, in, with, as I say in, the, in that piece, a kind of minimalism, where we almost leave a certain room for the insurgency to to riot to attack us. It's almost as they've got as, as, as if we're saying they've got a right to fight us. We don't use the full measure of our power, and I think the reason that we don't do that is because we know we'll be stigmatized as white Western imperialists who want to come in and occupy this poor brown country and steal its resources and so forth. That, that stigma is so powerful that it, it causes us to restrain the way we, and, and to hold back in, in terms of actually fighting the wars that we decide to enter. You and also so they just tend to go on and on yeah. and on. You also relate this to, of all things, the uh, problem we've got, the great national debate we've now got, over illegal immigration. Yes, it's the same thing. It, white guilt means that one, it, it, the, the, you can always see it because the one thing we can never do is the really difficult thing. We cannot enforce standards in education. We cannot win the wars that we fight. We cannot seal the border to our own country before we create a, uh, a workers' program. We can't do the difficult things because we're, if we do them, that's where we're going to be stigmatized as bigots and racist and, and, and so forth. And so it, it weakens the entire body politic. It, it makes us unable. And, of course, then the, the, the people who invariably suffer the most are minorities. By the way, we've been doing a number of programs about the immigration muddle. Uh, what position do you take about, say, the two bills, the two competing bills in Congress right now? Well, I think the first thing, I'm, I'm sort of more for the House bill. I think the thing we, ha we have to seal, I don't think anything is going to be meaningful until we, uh, until we seal the borders. And, and um, uh, people have used the term sequencing, that, you know, mm -hmm. that let's do one thing at a time. And I think if we can actually secure our borders, then the next step will be obvious. I don't, I don't think anybody uh, on either side of this debate is against immigration. I certainly am not. I think it is one of the things that makes us a great nation. Uh, but, that, but we still should be able to do both the hard and the soft. We should be able to seal our borders. Now, we, um, here's our situation at the moment. Some commercials coming yet once again. This is, as you know, a prosperous radio station. Yes. <laughs> and um, then, uh, were you a WGN listener when you lived in, as a kid in Chicago? I sure was, yeah. Good. TV, um, too. Great. Uh, so we'll take care of those commercials, then right on to the phones. At the moment, all the lines are taken. If you're trying to reach us, you're not getting through. But, of course, the proper strategy is to call again on 5917200 directly after we say goodnight to a prior caller. Also, of course, the email is available for listeners uh, anywhere, certainly those on the Internet listening at a great distance, including those listening in yet another country. Uh, the email address, extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 5917200, and directly onto your comments and contributions after this.
And with that, we will go directly to the phones for your calls, whether in the form of questions or direct commentary, to Shelby Steele. On 591-7200, good evening. You are on the air. Good evening. Uh, first off, I'd like to say uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the book, uh, The Content of Our Character. I read it many years ago when it first came out, and I, I think Dr. Steele's uh, explanation of the anti-self is something that really goes a long way to this describing a lot of antisocial behavior, not necessarily just among uh, African Americans, but uh, in any event, I, I wanted to follow up with a couple of quick questions. First off, um, your uh, uh, discussion earlier this evening uh, regarding the uh, the whole concept of black students who do well academically are kind of tarred within their own community with the epithet of, of acting white, and that was something that Barack Obama actually mentioned very forcefully in his very dramatic speech at the Democratic National Convention a couple of years ago, and I think he used the phrase uh, "blood libel" for uh, certain students to be putting down academically uh, uh, advanced students in the, the black community. Uh, I I don't know. I have not followed his uh, his uh, path on this topic, but is it something that he's kind of revisited as a as an ongoing theme and and his persona as a public person? Shelby, that's that's a good question. Um... I have. I'm not aware of it. If he, I, I, I should not say that he hasn't. But, but I'm not aware of it. Um, I was. I too was happy to see him make that remark um, because it's a smart remark to make. And it's true. I think it was a very smart remark, and I think it probably uh, was one of the main factors that really catapulted him in, in the popularity that he enjoyed since that time. Yes. And I yes. hope he sticks to his guns on that. Uh, one other quick question. Um, I recently heard a uh, speech by uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, and he was, in fact, uh, invoking some research that was done by your brother regarding the issue of uh, why African Americans tend to not do as well on standardized tests as uh, as uh, white and Asian parts. And he said that it was there was an element of um, I, I don't know how we would exactly characterize it, but it was more self-fulfilling prophecy that they that African-American students frequently feel that they're not as well equipped to, uh, to compete against other students uh, from other ethnic backgrounds. And he cited a study, and he didn't get into a lot of detail, but he said, in fact, the same phenomenon crops up among white students when they're told that they're going to be competing against mainly Asian students who typically do better than they do. Uh, are you familiar with that whole yes, argument? Yes, I am. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And... and well, do you find any validity to it? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. uh, I don't find any validity to it. I think it's one of the you, one of the things the movements in in um, uh, particularly in the area of psychology and social psychology in the last uh, sad to say in the last few decades has been to try to find new ways in which uh, minorities can be victims. Uh, and so now uh, the idea is that uh, we're we're victims uh, even of stereotypes that we come into test-taking situations and, whoa, my gosh, we see a white kid and we fall to pieces. I don't think that, I think it's just, a, it, it hasn't, uh, in, the, in the studies that have tried to duplicate it, it's, it's, it has never panned out. Um, uh, it's a, again, it's a, it's a highly politicized kind of research that, that uh, just tries to make us victims all over again. And by the way, I, I may testify as a card-carrying social psychologist. <laughs> who was professor of social psychology for most of his life. But uh, that is a sub-discipline within psychology, which is as far tilted to the left as any could possibly be. 
Uh, we go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. The number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange that you would at that moment mention what's far tilted to the left and what's far tilted to the right. It appears that this conversation is seems to be far, far tilted to the right. I agree with many of the things that he says, but when he gives such a one-sided uh, opinion, even though I believe them to be truths, it, it's, it's rather misleading. Now, I want to tell you that my, my personal background, which is not necessarily unique, I come from a middle-class family, and I consider myself to be currently upper-middle-class, economically speaking. I have worked for 10 of the top Fortune 200 companies, and I've worked for two of the top five Fortune 500 companies. Pardon me. I've worked for two of the top five Fortune companies. And in those companies, they promote diversity. It is not because that the blacks or other minorities that who, who go for the jobs are inferior. It's because not only of a legacy, but of the way the, the, the in-house populace believes blacks to be, so that even a qualified black would often would be overlooked for a job for another. Now, this is, now this is true. So when someone says that affirmative action is not necessary, it's not needed, that is incorrect. It is not always needed and is often abused. That is true. But to blanketly state that because someone was entered a, a school, a job, or whatever the case may be, because of affirmative action, where affirmative action assisted them, that they were underqualified or not as qualified as another is an absolute lie. Well, this, the, this, the facts, I'm sorry to say, don't bear you out. Um, well, yes, they, yes, they do, sir. Eight percent of every, let me just answer, eight percent of every freshman class in, in any Ivy League school you, you, uh, you look at, mm -hmm. Harvard, Princeton, whatever, eight percent is always black, no matter what. Mm -hmm. If you get rid of a racial preferences, a lower standard for blacks, only one or two percent would be. One of my complaints against affirmative action is that you end up stigmatizing that one or two percent who've won their way there by meritorious competition. You, you stigmatize them with affirmative action as well. There's, there's no, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to get a preference, you're also going to get a stigma. Well, and you're going to be seen as second rate. That is very again. important that you, that you said that, sir, because people who are there by legacy are not stigmatized, but those there by affirmative action are stigmatized. You should never, well, ever no, go into standards. people who are legacy are also stigmatized. No, They're no, just no, not no. As well I, I, I seriously doubt if there's someone there by legacy that people will, will look down on them. So because we have a lower standard for, for them, we, it's okay to even, no, for one I, thing, I, as I you have a before, much lower sir, standard for blacks than you do for legacies. You do not have a lower standard for anybody. If someone well, does not deserve to be in that position, then they should not be in that position. It is acceptable if that if the only one. You see, you see how emotional right. you are right now. One of the things that pains me about affirmative action is that is that people in your situation, mm -hmm. who are honorable, hardworking, talented people, yeah. have to defend yourself in this way. That's why. Why don't, do I don't we have put to that on, myself, on blacks? It, why do we put that on ourselves? I don't, sir. I don't have to defend myself. But yes, you do. That's what you called up to do. I, I, I called up because because when, when I hear an untrue for a half truth, I I, I want. No, I you're defending to... yourself. You're defending it. Be honest. You're defending yourself. I'm, I'm not defending myself, sir. Sure you are. Well, because, because you're stigmatized, and it hurts. No, it makes no, it, you it, angry, it, and it should. Sir, can I, can I, please, I am in touch with my own feelings, sir. I know that I'm not hurting because of it. What bothers me... You wouldn't be calling me. No, 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 sir. Are, are you kidding? You are, you are Shelby. Still, you're a very famous gentleman, and, you, and it's an honor to talk to you. That's why I'm calling you. But still, nevertheless, there, there, there's a level of propaganda that's going out there that unfortunately... You are propagating. Okay, well, let me l listen. Is how do how is it possible to stop that propaganda as long as there are diversity policies that have double standards? 
Well, see, what one is, one is basically to end the double standard. One is basically to end the double standard, saying that if you are not qualified for this position, you should not be this in position. But, I, but I'll give you another prime example of how it is in Chicago. If, we, if we're qualified, why do we have a preference? Well, see, uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, in real life, like, like I said, in Chicago, if you have, let's say that you have a relative that works for a company, corporation, or in the government, that person can oftentimes get you in. Um, can they do it if they're black? Um, yes, they can do it if they're black. Oh, but, okay. But in, but in Chicago, as in most cities, there's a legacy of where at, at one time blacks were not hired. So the, the majority of the workers in the workforce, even though the city itself may be 40%, 60% black, the workers may be 80% white in, in that well, organization, but, and, they, and they're able to get their relatives and their friends in. And so, a, and so, therefore, you want a racial preference? No. You, you don't I want do not I do not well, how can you have diversity or affirmative action without having a racial preference? You can't. Well, I, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you how to solve that. This is how you. This is how you solve that. Any group within the past 40 years that has been discriminated against or, or economically disadvantaged. Uh, economically disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged, which which includes all groups, white, black, doesn't matter, Hispanic, Asian. Give, give them a, a slight well, preference. Here's, here, let me, one of the problems I have, another problem, because is the fact that we, we take the talented tenth of black Americans, the, the ones who are the most talented, and, and uh, of the top 10% of that are the ones who actually is only about, only, blacks only get about 3 or 4% of the advantage of affirmative action. White women get 80%. Yes. 80%. They don't get a stigma. Uh, uh, even Hispanics don't. We do. Yeah. We're the ones who get the stigma. We're the ones who pay the price and uh, uh, the, the, the reputation of being second rate. We're the ones who pay in that way so that we're seen that way even when we're first rate. Well, it, it keeps us locked in a perception in American life as well, inferiors. Uh, so, gentlemen, like, excuse me. I must intervene for just a moment. Sir, we have to stop in just a minute at the most. So uh, let me ask you to give the last comment. In life, people are not necessarily going to like you because you may be "quote unquote" stigmatized because of affirmative action. Should not impact on your ability or your will to proceed. If you are stigmatized, that is that is a problem of the other individual. They have a problem within their heart that they are going to have to deal with. If you are qualified and you deserve to be there, regardless of how you got there, you you perform to your best of your abilities. And I thank you, sir, for a, a valuable contribution. Thank you. You've spoken articulately and made your point well. Um, and we will continue to discuss that and related points surely as we continue right after an update on the evening's news. But let me first say that, uh, again, of course, the number is 591-7200. And there's room for more email. There's infinite room for email. That's extension 720 at tribune.com. And with that, we go to the newsroom and Paula Cooper. And we go directly back to the phones for your questions and or comments to Shelby Steele, author of the new book, White Guilt. That is just published by HarperCollins. 591-7200 is the number, and you are the next caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Milt. How are you? Fine, sir. Go ahead. I, I wanted to first comment. This is by far the one of the most interesting topics I've heard in, on your show in a very long time, so well done. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to comment, actually. I was telling your producer, um, and I appreciate uh, you allowing me to participate. Um I am actually uh, Caucasian myself, but my wife is African American, and I wanted uh, you've discussed a lot tonight about uh, you know white guilt and black participation, black self accountability. I was curious uh, the author's 
And by the way, I'm so going to read this book. <laughs> um, the author's take on interracial marriages. Uh, do you feel, I, I haven't read the book, obviously. I, I haven't really heard unless you've already covered it, in which case I apologize. Um, your take on interracial marriages, do you feel that it's helping or hurting? Because obviously we, my wife and I, we have children. We've heard both sides. Um, we, we raise them to feel that they're human beings. You know, obviously, you know, have pride in all of uh, the cultures that they come from. I'm Irish. My wife is African-American. Um, and, you know, be proud of your backgrounds. But above all, we're human. And so, you know, know, know that, believe that, and help anyone in any, you know, walk of life, no matter what their background. You know, economic, mm -hmm. racial, whatnot. So I was just curious as to, as to the author's take, interracial mm -hmm. marriages helping or hurting. So that's okay. it. Thank you. Well, um, I'm probably uh, biased on this. I was born into one. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, obviously, I, I, uh, I, I just simply cannot agree with you enough. Um, to, uh, again, I grew up, my parents met in the civil rights <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> no, my parents uh, grew up in the, met in the civil rights movement in Chicago and CORE in nineteen early 40s. And um, I grew up uh, in that movement, and again, we were fighting for the right to be human beings and be seen as human beings and citizens. And and uh, um, it, it will surprise people, but in the 50s, we fought for not to put our race on applications, job applications, school applications, because we knew it would be used against us. We wanted to be seen as individuals and human beings. You know, the the whole identity politics that that today is anathema to uh, interracial marriage is is simply because we we began to feel because of white guilt that we could get things for being black, and so all of a sudden when the very the very group that had defeated the idea that group identity should be a source of power that's what white supremacy was turned around and began to fight for it again one of the great mistakes we've made uh, interracial marriage is I, I I even hate the term it's just marriage between two people absolutely I completely. My wife and I, she's a librarian. Uh, we're constantly, at, you know, fighting for the application process. We we totally skipped that question about racial preference. And sir, we thank you for the call. Glad to have heard from you, and uh, an interesting contribution and uh, a necessary pause for the usual reasons. Then directly back to Shelby Steele and your calls to him on five nine one seven two double zero. And directly back to the phones on five nine one seven two double zero for your questions to Shelby Steele, author of the new book. White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era. And here is the next caller. Good evening. Yes, hi. Uh, I have a uh, quick story with a follow-up question. Yes, sir. And then, a, and then a comment about the gentleman who was talking about uh, uh, all the corporate, uh, corporate problems he's had. First of all, uh, in college, freshman year, struggling academically, socially, uh, scared away from home for the first time, and uh, not happy with the the group of friends I'd made, I sat down a guy who I thought was uh, a leader. And I said, hey, why, why, why isn't anybody giving me respect? And he said, you know what, you're not going to get it till you earn it. And I don't know why, uh, you know, the leaders in the race can't, you know, much like Cosby did, why more people can't stand up and make like a national or group-wide calling. Is that something that's being done or others? Um, I, just, I just joined as you were talking about Cosby. Are there other leaders out there that are, um, you know, trying to rally uh, the race and, and the guys in the race who aren't who aren't acting accountable. Um, well, they're not 
nearly enough, that's for sure. Um, uh, and of course, certainly Cosby is is uh, I think had a greater impact because he's Bill Cosby. He's one of the most famous people in the world. And, and right, uh, but, but but I mean, look at all the athletes. Look at the kind of rising class of politicians. Um, Barack Obama. Um, I mean, just there's so many people well, out there they, they, that, that, that have these guys' ears. That's right, but they're not going to do it, and it's a tragedy. I look at all of them, and uh, and uh, you're right. All of these, the athletes who've done so well, the businessmen. There are corporate presidents in America, black, who who have done so, uh, so well in American society. They won't do it because, again, at this point in our society, it's one of the reasons that one one of the things that motivated me to write this book is that if they do do it, they're going to cross that line, <laughs> and they're going to be seen as Uncle Toms, as sellouts. And they're going to be called some of the names that I get called all the time. And, and if whites agree with them, uh, if, if whites stand beside Bill Cosby, suppose President Bush went to, went to, to one of Cosby's big call-out meetings now and stood beside him. Sure. Uh, Bush would never allow that photo opportunity to happen because he'd be, he, too, would be stigmatized. Right. That's how, that's how thick it is in our society. And, and so, so many successful blacks have, have just been afraid. And, and someday, I think we're all going to be ashamed of this. It's a dark time for black Americans. Right. And then my, my follow-up, and thanks, I think that's a great point. My follow-up on the gentleman who called earlier with all the 10 jobs here and two jobs there. Um, you know, he didn't sound like he was that old. And if he's worked at 12 companies, uh, I'm actually uh, in the um, hiring business in, in uh, uh, the corporate arena. And um, I think... Affirmative action is probably allowing guys that have worked at 12 places to keep getting hired other places where I don't think uh, many white applicants with that many dip, uh, jobs on their job history would be hired. Well, I think you, you, you may well have a point. I, again, I, I don't know his, his individual circumstance, and I, you know, I, I certainly wish him well. Uh, but the experience that most blacks have today in institutional America, whether it's in a corporation or a government agency or a university, is the goodwill of that institution and the whites right. who work in it. Right. Thank you, sir, for the call. And we go directly to this caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, sir. Um, yeah, so I wanted to call a little bit about uh, my experience of working in a small college um, admissions office. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gone to this college um, as an undergraduate and then worked there afterwards. And um, what I found very troubling was the fact that, um, you know, we had standards of ACT scores, class rank, and grade point average that went into figuring out who would be admitted. Mm. And, of course, anyone that qualified that met those standards would get in. And then there'd be some borderline cases, and if we had spots, they'd evaluate who would go in. And what generally happened, or basically happened at all times, is um, at that point it wasn't a matter of who was closest to the cutoff. It, it, if there were black students, even if they, their ACT was very, very low, um, they would get the spots. And what um, I thought, I mean, I thought it, on basis of just fairness that it seemed wrong, but also um, when they talked to the students that were on the borderline that were not black, they would counsel them to go to um, junior college, which I think is good advice, to prepare them for college because they probably weren't prepared. The black students who were admitted generally didn't last a year. And I always felt that it was really not a good thing to do because these students now felt they had failed. Mm -hmm. And 
whereas they really weren't prepared. They weren't ready to be in that institution. And I mean, I don't know in all cases, but all the students I knew when I was an undergraduate that um, failed out on that basis didn't go to junior college and go on to a college career, at least not in my acquaintance with them. And I just felt that, you know, it was a case of really white guilt, but in the end, it really kind of hurt those students. Well, I, it, uh, I agree with you entirely. It's what, it's, uh, what uh, uh, my friend Thomas Sowell calls the mismatch theory. It's, it's what affirmative action does is, is kick minority students up to the pre precisely to the level where they're, gonna f they're most likely to fail. Mm -hmm. If you let them win admission into whatever institution they won by merit, then they would have very likely a, an experience of success. But today, black students have the highest dropout rate and the lowest grade point average of any student group in the United States. And, and, uh, and a lot of it has to do with affirmative action. And, and you know, the, the idea, too, that I know the admissions the guidance counselor there had always said, she goes, well, you know, we really don't want to send someone to junior college because that's, they thought of junior college as somehow a failing, whereas, you know, it's really an opportunity. Yes. Because there's a lot of students of all colors that just aren't ready for a rigorous academic um, career. Well, I'm, I'm a great believer in junior colleges. I think it's one of the greatest resources this society has, and, and um it, it just offers people an opportunity to mature a little more and to get some skills under under their belt, and, and so they really can succeed in college. Ma'am, ma I won't ask you to identify the college, but is, is it in the Chicago area? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for the call. Sure. Bye. And um, we will pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back to Shelby Steele. And quickly back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes. I would like to say to Shelby Steele that even though I, you know, I to some extent agree with him that black people do uh, use, what should I say, too many African Americans use racism as a as the boogeyman and, a, and an excuse, a scapegoat. But at the same time, I also want to acknowledge that his analysis seems to be an oversimplification of the problem. Racism is a general term. That is not the problem. Okay, you, um, Jews do not use the term racism to, de to de 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 denote the conditions that they are up against. They use the term anti-Semitism. Anti we should use the term Aryanism to denote the problem that plagues black people worldwide. Aryanism says white dominance. Whites have to be in control always. Whites are the rulers any other races should be in secondary position. And Aryanism is a historical problem that goes as far back as India in the 1500 B.C., when the Caucasians first began to come down and war with the, the black Gridians and gain dominance and set up the Verna color caste system. And that has been spread on into uh, the... Uh, Iran and on across into the Mesopotamia and the Middle East. And it has been a problem that has plagued mankind for the last uh, 3,500 years. And to say racism in pertaining to black people, Aryanism doesn't exist. 
is just a gross oversimplification and, a, and, and it is an injustice. All right, sir, let's get some response to that. Let's get some okay. response from Shelby Seal. Time okay. is rather short, please. Okay, well, yeah, uh, obviously I didn't say racism doesn't exist. What's interesting is that you said that you started out agreeing with me to some degree that the racism has been used too much as an excuse, and then you turn around for the next few minutes well, and you Well, yes, because if any, people, is, if any people is, is going to uh, overcome a problem, a they how have to acknowledge freedom? the how problem, about, but they can't how use that problem freedom? as an excuse. Let me ask you this. How much, if, if you celebrate freedom, as much as you celebrate racism, I'll go along with you. Well, sir, okay. Well, I celebrate Can we make freedom, a deal? But, well, let I'll me go say along this, with sir. it. Sure, there's okay. racism in the world, okay. but boy, well, is there a lot of freedom and opportunity as well, let, more let so. Let me say this for you. Let me say this, though. Uh, also, let me just say this parenthetically about interracial marriage. And then we're going to get back to this discussion because I also want to say something about. Sir, time is very short. <laughs> sir, please listen, listen to me for a moment, please. You've only got about one minute left because time is very short. Okay. Well, women are not stigmatized when they're given preference. Why? Because their their right of equality is recognized. Also, interracial marriage is not going to solve the problem because India is a classic example of what you have with interracial marriage. You're going to have a, a, a black people still going to be at the bottom. They're going to still be stigmatized. All right. And outcast well, well, let me, let me just say this. Uh, I don't advocate interracial marriage as a politics. <laughs> it's just something that happens in a free society. Well, yeah, it, it always has happened. It's sure, always going to happen. And so it's off the table. It's off the table. And the problem is Aryanism. Just like when okay. you made an analysis about in, in the civil rights struggle during black power. Black power was not a movement towards separatism. It was a movement towards where blacks want to have some organizations where whites was not always in control. Sir, with that, so I it, must thank you, and I must be cruel to be kind, but we, uh, the man is rather excited, though obviously uh, on the basis of deep uh, feeling. Uh, any last words you want to make in response to that, Shelby? No, I, I, I totally understand. I mean, this is a, this is, um, I, I have... You know, I don't disagree with him probably as much as he thinks. I, I yeah. write in the book about white supremacy. I write, I write about the fact that one of the most f interesting facets of late 20th century uh, history across the world was the defeat of white supremacy from one end of the, the third world to, the, to, to another, and that the civil rights movement was simply one of countless revolutions that were essentially revolutions against white supremacy. Yeah. And those revolutions won they won. White but you know, if, is no longer if I were to strike, valid. if I were to strike any note of disagreement with you, and I would strike it only mildly, because basically, obviously, I value what you say in this book, uh, and, I, and I value how well you say it. But still, you must acknowledge, I, as I'm sure you do, that there is a residue of white distance from, or even condescension towards blacks, which does show up. Uh, Absolutely doesn't show up in all in all whites, Absolutely. but it's there. It's in our it's, society. I, I run into it myself in my own life. Even uh, you may uh, have some trouble hailing a taxi cab. Um, well, I, I I haven't actually. I go, I'm in New York a lot, and I actually yeah. haven't. But I might uh, next time yeah. I go, uh, it might happen to me. And it might be a black taxi driver sure. who does it. To be sure. Uh, all I'm saying is that yes, there 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 are these sentiments alive. There's a lot of anti-white feeling in the black America. Uh, every group yeah. has these these yeah. tendencies. The, the, the question is, do they have the authority to impose them on others? Well, white America truly does does not have the kind of authority it once had to impose them on no. others. But I fear if you go any place you go in the world, if there is any differentiation within the the population, you'll find 
uh, bigotry. some status human, human uh, bigotry. difference and some bigotry. Uh, yeah. You could hear Yemeni Jews uh, living in Israel complaining about the Ashkenazim who right. uh, treat them with some condescension. Yes. Uh, back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening. Hello, Neil. Hello, uh, Dr. Uh, Rosenberg. I was just calling to piggyback um, to on the... I agree with everything Mr. Stills really been saying. I, I, I'll give you some background information. I was uh, raised by a single mother. I um, went off to school, and I worked hard, and I, I, was, I was able to go into uh, dental, dentistry, went to dental school. And um, when I got there, I felt that um, I was able to compete with my peers, but I noticed that there was a stigmatism that I felt that I knew there was an affirmative action program there, and I had that sense that they felt that, you know, the students felt that you just got in based on that and that you really couldn't compete with them. And um, I noticed that many of the black students when I was in school were being forced to repeat year after year or stay longer to achieve their degrees. How long ago was that, sir? Oh, um, about five years ago. Uh-huh. So, um, but I was able to, uh, you know, matriculate through the school and, um, and with the flow of my um, classmates, but I just always felt, and I also had an instructor tell me once that he felt that the black students weren't prepared and that they needed to repeat that year. And so I made a point to make sure I wouldn't repeat a year. And, <laughs> you know, I just worked that harder. But, but it was, I agree, I felt the affirmative action that I didn't, I got, I could have competed. I didn't know if I got in on my merit or did I get in on the, on the affirmative action because I was able to compete. But I felt that my classmates, you know, that it was there. It was pervasive. Sir, I'm, I'm, sure, you will, I'm sure you will understand if I say that we've got a, a plug out now because we're just about done. But I thank you very much for your contribution. Sure. And any further comments you've got on it, Shelby, please go ahead. Well, I, I totally empathize with it. It's one of my uh, my problems. Uh, it, it, it's we're, we're a people as black Americans who are trying to overcome uh, centuries of deprivation uh, that were imposed on us by, by racism and white supremacy. To now put us back in that position where someone has to go to school in this s circumstance where they're that you you breeding into them this kind of insecurity and self-doubt seems to me to be a cruelty it is it, it's not something that is it, and then not only that but then we all all black all of us blacks now have to be invested in in affirmative action because we've all been tainted by it people can say and we say to each other you're just there because you're an affirmative action baby and we we humiliate ourselves with that that stigma but let me ask you this as the last question and i fear i've only got a minute left for your response is, is there any role left for government should government be doing anything about the group that you and i agree is the most uh, worrisome of all uh, namely the disadvantaged kids in the inner city without a father usually and not getting a decent education there are there are many things that can be done but can uh, they be done by government I, I'm not even entirely opposed to doing things by government, though. Though uh, I, you know, government uh, oftentimes is uh, uh, is more uh, causes more harm than help. The the, yeah, the main thing so. that gov government can absolutely do nothing for inner city poor kids unless it first of all asks something of them. And mm -hmm. if the big mistake in, in racial policy is that we don't ask anything of the people we're trying to help, so they never develop. <clears throat> and uh, that's the so yes, government can, though I I wouldn't. I mean, I think there are other ways, but 
It can as long as it asks something. Of the, if we gave out affirmative action, you said you have to make a B-plus average now in order to keep it. Mm -hmm. There'd be some incentive to performance, to excellence. Well said. But also, black leadership could do a lot more. Uh, well, I, I think we're getting, I hope we're getting to the point where we don't need leaders anymore. Because uh, mm. <laughs> what's the incentive to become a black leader now? To manipulate white guilt. Uh, <laughs> well, you're not, you're not doing that. I hope not. Yet you are exerting very significant leadership, I would say. Shelby Steele has been our guest tonight. The title of the book, once again, the full title, White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era, is just published by HarperCollins.